0: Welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an Evergreen Podcasts Network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. It's been a while. It's been a while since we got Uki. And or spooky. And well, we're, I guess well, we're always... Speak for yourself. I'm always ooky spooky. We're always getting ooky and spooky, but it's been a while since we spent any time with actual ghosts on this show.
1: Okay, I'll give you that.
0: Uh, actual ghosts, I guess. <laughs> you know, a uh, uh, grain of salt there, but... Uh... Oh,
1: so you believe now.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so, I wanted to take us back. It's the Halloween season, and I felt that it was time, high time, Carrie, that we talked about... A haunting, a real-life, supposedly, allegedly, (laughs) haunting case, and we are going to today talk about one of the best-known. This is the Enfield Poltergeist. Mm Mm-hmm. Insert, you know, howling wolves and crackling lightning here. Boo! Thank you very much. Mm Mm-hmm. The Enfield Poltergeist, or the Enfield Haunting, was a supposed haunting between 1977 and 79... Of the council house at 284 Green Street, in Enfield, England, mm-hmm. UK. Uh, the case was the inspiration for 2016's monstrously successful sequel, The Conjuring Two, mm-hmm. uh, which Carrie, you and I watched last night to kind of cap off the research for this episode. Um, how did it hold up for you? How, how did you? How did your revisiting of The Conjuring?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, I've I've seen the movie a few times. I think it's a solid follow-up to The First Conjuring. I think, personally, I kind of relate to the first one a little more because it's that classic New England setting and all that fun stuff. Um, but I, I think it holds up. I, I don't really know how the, the nun figures into everything, but I am sure that they explain that one in the nun spit off
0: i think they explain it here the demon took a um took that form to mock her uh faith
1: no yeah i just don't know how she figures into
0: the enfield haunting part oh you mean in real life
1: no just in the movie oh okay i was gonna say i've got a hint (laughs) for you
0: she doesn't yeah um okay so the story starts as the film did with peggy hodgson A single mother of four children Margaret, 12 years old Janet, 11 years old Johnny, 10 And Billy, 7
1: Always a bunch of kids in these Conjuring
0: movies Uh, Yes, a single mother helps But certainly a lot of kids Uh, You know what? And we'll talk about this later, Carrie Maybe not necessary for poltergeist activity But really helpful is a chaotic home life Mm -hmm. Um, And there could be all kinds of reasons that's true But uh, I I might be getting ahead of myself (laughs) Peggy and her kids moved into the council house on Green Street after she had had what is by most accounts, well, all accounts, a uh, pretty unfriendly divorce from her husband. Um, a council house is, is public housing. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, essentially a, a a housing project, although kind of a nicer uh, uh, version than we kind of think of in the, in the U.S. Right. Now, there's no way of confirming this, but Janet Hodgson says she and her siblings, uh, specifically her older sister, Margaret, had been playing with a Ouija board shortly before the occurrences began. Mm -mm. And we do see that represented in the movie. They've got this homemade, it's a spirit board in (laughs) it. Everyone in this movie sounds the most British. Borderline. Except for the Warrens, of course. uh, Cockney to, I would say, a borderline Dick Van Dyke place, like they're, (laughs) they're doing parodies. Um, in, in any case, on August 30th of 1977, Peggy had trouble putting the kids down for bed. They were being really difficult. You know, you 4 again, it's a chaotic house. Four kids trying to get them all to go to sleep. They're in two different rooms. Now, Janet claimed that her bed and the beds of her brothers in the next room were vibrating and wobbling wildly. Mm-hmm. It wasn't her fault, all the noise. The beds started shaking. And... um Peggy, you know, I I imagine said something like, yeah, very funny. Go to bed. Uh, The following night, though, the bedtime chaos returned. This is Janet in an interview uh, much, much later in her 40s. It started in a back bedroom. (laughs) The chest of drawers moved and you could hear shuffling. Mom said, I want you to pack it in. We told her what was going on and she came to see it for herself. She saw the chest of drawers moving. When she tried to push it back, she couldn't.
1: We're just four lads from Liverpool. I mean, we were just four
0: four (laughs) lovable lads, you know? We didn't know we'd be the bloody Beatles. (laughs) Well, that sounds terrifying. And we see that scene exactly in the movie. Mm -hmm. And uh, exactly as in the movie, Peggy eventually appeals to neighbor and big tough construction worker Vic Nottingham to come and check out the bedrooms. Um.
1: Yeah, Vic Nottingham? Yeah. You're going to hide behind Vic
0: Nottingham. Oh, that's all right, isn't it? Oh, I went out there and I couldn't make out these noises, Vic said later. Oh, Vic. There was a knocking on the wall in the bedroom on the ceiling. I was beginning to get a bit frightened. I'm a
1: little concerned, Sean, about us doing another Cockney-heavy episode so soon after Jack the Ripper.
0: I know. Well, you know what it is, is my voice was so warmed up.
1: Oh, sure was.
0: And you can tell that I'm in top form now, so uh, we're just going <laughs> to press on. Great. Next, it was time to call the police. In the um, movie, I think the neighbors go like, oh, it's time to call the police, it." <laughs> no,
1: I think they just call them.
0: Yeah, uh, but it might have been Peggy's decision in uh, real life. In any case, patrol officer Carolyn Heaps, whose name is in the movie, as she's like, you know, in a fake news footage saying like, oh, a large armchair moved, unassisted, four feet across the floor, um, which is exactly what she said in real life. Constable Heaps swore that she saw a large armchair move four feet across the floor without anyone pushing on it.
1: So this is the first incident of activity. Well, the... Things are moving, they go to the neighbors, they get the police
0: called. This is like all one incident. The beds had been vibrating the night before, but yes, essentially. Okay, okay. Uh, Now, PC Heaps checked for hidden wires. Um, She was thinking some some kind of a trick, obviously, um, but couldn't figure out how the feat was accomplished if it was a trick. And the police eventually left, saying they had no idea what was going on, but they were pretty sure there was no crime here. So it wasn't their job. Mm -hmm. Um, The next visitors to the house, of course, were press.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: The Daily Mirror arrived, and photographer Graham Morris uh, tells us that it was chaos. Things started flying around. People were screaming.
1: Okay. I mean, it's the Daily Mirror. We'll take that with a grain of salt, but... Uh,
0: now, yes. Now, Graham Morris did take some of the photos. There are many photos from this house around the time of the incident, and uh, some of Graham's photos seem to capture objects kind of flying through. It's, it's tough to catch that kind of thing on camera.
1: Well, certainly still camera. You can throw something and take a picture, but, you know, you need video to really tell you what's happening.
0: And there are uh, other photos of Janet that seem to show a contorted expression of pain on her face, Mm. which was uh, characteristic of these fits that Janet was beginning to uh, get into. Mm, Great. Get get into it. (laughs) Meanwhile, the paranormal phenomena continued to escalate. Knocking and banging sounds were constant in the house from this point forward, and objects would fly through the air without warning. Apparently, uh, small toys, and especially Lego bricks and marbles...
1: Oh, just the most painful shit to have thrown at your face by a
0: ghost. Or to have lying on the floor. Yeah. You don't want to step on marbles or Lego bricks. As no, you're
1: going to turn into Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern and Home Alone. I was going to say. Flipping I think that, all over the place. That
0: movie showed us the, uh, the danger. <laughs> um, family members said that the marbles, especially and the Lego bricks, but it's interesting with the marbles, would hit the floor and stop dead. Hmm. No motion or rolling after they hit the ground. And then when you picked them up, they would be hot to the touch afterward.
1: Mm. Hot marbles.
0: At this point, somebody decided it was time to get some expertise that maybe the police didn't have. And so Peggy called the Society for Psychical Research, who sent investigators Maurice Gross and Guy Lyon Playfair. Uh, Maurice Gross is depicted in The Conjuring too. Mm-hmm. He's that kind of fuddy duddy with the curly, uh, with the with the perm.
1: Yeah, they say the name Maurice Gross like a thousand times in the movie. Yes, <laughs> uh,
0: they sure do. But he doesn't actually play that much of a role besides like being in the background of scenes, going like, and and what then, then <laughs> things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and
1: of course, Guy Playfair.
0: Yes, uh, Guy. Ga- yes, Guy Lyon Playfair. Sounds like a medieval knight. It it could be Guy, but I don't think he's a French. I don't think he's from France. So it's probably Guy. (laughs) Playfair. Um, Now, Maurice Gross, presumably Guy as well, but Maurice certainly walked around the house with a tape recorder. And so we actually have audio recordings of some of the phenomena he witnessed. And Maurice explaining what's going on, which is important because these audio clips are uh, chaotic. Mm -hmm. Remember, it's a house... And old. Yes. It's a house with four kids and a ghost. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And all of... So there's a lot of excitement, but also all of the accents are... Even if the recording quality and the playback quality were better, the accents are unintelligible, (laughs) to me at least. So you're going to have to have morris come in at the end here and and explain what exactly is going on because until then it's just a bunch of noise and excitement but i do want you to get the feeling of what it was like inside of this house okay <laughs> <laughs> I don't just go in there and put my head down turn the light down and that <laughs> 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 Right, That's the uh, front of the uh, doll's house is thrown right across the room over the top of the bed to the door. The doll's house is in the corner away right from the bed. And the light has jumped backwards from the end of the bed, and is now under the bed. So, okay. so Maurice is walking around, and he's uh, uh, documenting into his... Now, it's an audio medium, this tape recorder, which isn't ideal for him mm-hmm. showing us these phenomena, but mm-hmm. uh, he helpfully explains what it is that we just heard. The slipper was thrown across the room and hit the door uh, slipper. the, door. I, the white slipper hit the door as I was the door. hit me on the lip. hit me on the, lip. the other one's over here. The other one's over here. The, the
1: chaos.
0: Well, yeah. So I'm just
1: thinking they're very lucky they didn't have a dachshund who loves to bark like we do because...
0: Oh, unintelligible, these tapes <laughs> at that point. Yes. Um, But so with that one, you have a slipper, I guess, flying across the room and hitting someone in the head. Mm -hmm. Now, Maurice and Guy's presence seemed to embolden the spirits who were now pulling family members out of bed at night and sometimes levitating sofas in front of the the investigator's eyes. I mean, according to them, I don't have any video of that, but they said they saw a sofa levitate. On one occasion, Maurice and a visiting neighbor found Peggy shouting, I can't move. It's got me leg this is the older daughter now, and had to help wrestle her free from what they both swore was an unseen force. Mm -hmm. Some of these things are kind of scary. Yeah. Maurice was also now holding seances with the family, where he asked the spirit questions using the tried and true one knock for no, two knocks for yes method. Mm -hmm. And this first clip comes right after the ghost has started ignoring Maurice's questions and uh, just knocking... Seemingly in random patterns, Mm -hmm. which uh, Maurice is a little bit annoyed with. (laughs) So he decides to press the ghost further. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Are you having a game with me? Oh, you haven't laughed. Oh, right. Oh, asking, question, <laughs> I asked the questions. Oh, it came It's through. It's the the cardboard box and the pillow right on my face. Well, thank you very much. That was a very good answer. <laughs> so, uh, in case that was too difficult to hear, uh, Maurice asks if the spirit is playing games with him. Mm-hmm. to which uh, a cardboard box and pillow are suddenly thrown in his face. Yeah, take that. Uh, well, yes, very good answer. Maurice eventually uh, developed sort of a rapport with the ghost, oh. uh, which is nice. Uh, they never seemed to really get along, um, but he certainly um, knew how to talk to it by the end, and, and here is Maurice and the knocking ghost having, um, I guess, basically a full-out argument. Can you tell me why you are... Upsetting this family. Is it because you enjoy doing it? You do enjoy doing it. But I suggest that now you've got. Now, what does that mean? Why, why have we no three knocks? I ask you the question again. Two knocks for yes, one knock for no. Now, yeah, that's what this ghost now, is a smartass. Do you enjoy upsetting this family? You do. Well, now will you please go away? Because I think you've had enough of your jokes. You won't go away. But I would like you to go away and go away because I think you've been upsetting this family long enough, and it's time you went away. Do you understand me? Please go away. Yes, you must go away. It's absolutely essential that you go away. No, it mustn't be obstinate. You must go away. (laughs) You must. I'm sorry, but you must stop annoying this family. You've had enough. You've had a good time. Now please go away. (laughs) We've all had our fun. (laughs) All right? Please go away. I can't say any more to you now. Goodbye.
1: Goodbye. This is very much when Poe is begging for treats, and you're like, no, we already gave you a treat, you have your cookie, now you gotta go go away.
0: Well, to yeah, to your point, um, it's it's very much like an adult having a conversation with a child, mm-hmm. which will become um, even more interesting, I think, as we uh, start to, you know, possibly try to identify this ghost. Mm-hmm. Uh, The knocking was very much not just on command, as I've mentioned, Mm -hmm. and the family would hear it start in one place and then slowly fade in louder and then out as it moved up or down or along a wall, Hmm. like it was playing a little hide-and-seek game or trying to lead you somewhere. The family, for their part, was not into it, (laughs) and by this time, they were all sleeping in the same room with the lights on.
1: So... (sighs) Is the homemade Ouija board thing the only real thing that could have set this off in terms of like concrete things that they did just before this started happening?
0: Well, yeah, I guess part of the fear in a story like this, right, is that this could what's to stop it from happening to you? Because I'm
1: just wondering what what started it.
0: We'll talk about the different possible causes later on, but uh, I would, for now, suffice it to say that uh, almost always, children hitting puberty is happening around a poltergeist.
1: Right. So, we talked about that with the Bridgeport case, for yeah, example.
0: Exactly. So that's that's a kind of a trigger. In, in sure. basically a hundred percent of poltergeist cases, there is a young, a teenager or child around puberty. Usually a girl In the house, usually a girl and, and in this case, you have two And so, it could be as simple as that Whether the answer is paranormal or not You know, that that certainly could be a factor It's present in, in a lot of the cases hmm Now, the family members Peggy and all four of her kids All claimed to see shadowy figures Looming in doorways and on landings And ghostly faces leering back at them From windows and mirrors hmm Uh, Maurice and Guy, who never reported any shadow figures or uh, mysterious faces, by the way, did notice curious whistling and barking noises that they said often originated from the general direction of Janet. Okay. Now, eventually, apparently, the ghost got tired of this kind of limited form of communication and started using Janet as a mouthpiece directly.
1: Like possession? Possession.
0: That might be a word I would use, Carrie. Actually, uh, well, the I don't know possession-y elements of this never progress to the point that we see in The Conjuring Two. Sure. Um, those are those are really the elements where they uh, they expand on the story. Um, <laughs> the, the parts with Janet being possessed and attacking her brother with a knife and folding herself into the space in the walls, mm-hmm. all that stuff is is um, Hollywood. But in what was probably the most sinister manifestation of this whole haunting, Janet would convulse before opening her mouth to release a creaking, drawling, unmistakably male voice much older than her own. Hmm. Now, (laughs) unlike in The Conjuring 2, in real life, the voice would only make itself heard when Janet and her sister were alone in their bedroom with the door closed. Hmm. And so in order for adults, like, say, Maurice Gross, to ask it questions, uh, they would have to do so, like, through the door. Okay. We do see the family turning their backs to talk to Bill in The uh, Conjuring 2. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, apparently, Janet would only do this, or this would only happen if Janet was uh, in her room, either alone or only with her sister. Um, In any case, here, the ghost, who did identify himself as Bill, shares his memories of his own death. Oh, great. And remember, this voice is ostensibly coming from an 11-year-old girl. I want you to tell me whether you remember what happened to you when you died. Just before you died and just after you died. (laughs) <laughs> Got to put the tape recorder down. There is one died I think. I went blind. Then I had an emmeridge, and I fell asleep, and I died in a chair in a corner downstairs. <laughs> I went blind, and I had an emmeridge. And then I went to sleep, and I died in a chair in a corner downstairs.
1: That's gross. That's a gross voice.
0: During one of these trances, Janet apparently, again, alone in the room, wrenched an iron grate off of a fireplace. That was attached. Yes, that was bolted on. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bill, the ghost, also mentioned periods a lot, apparently, menstruation. And he was occasionally foul-mouthed for no reason. He would just throw curse words in there. Um, Which maybe sounds less like an old dead man and more like an 11-year-old girl, but I'm not pointing any finger.
1: I mean, as you've mentioned, in terms of poltergeist and hauntings, there are theories that whatever happens during puberty kind of stirs up. That energy or those spirits certainly and stirs up energy, especially menstruating girls. Um, for some reason, people seem to think that they're especially conducting of these energies. But but uh, it, well, that's kind of like the the book and movie Carrie. You know, she gets this telekinesis when she gets her period.
0: Yeah, we talked about that with the Bridgeport Poltergeist as well. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: But talking about periods all the time definitely seems more like something an 11-year-old girl might be...
1: Well, certainly not like like an old man.
0: Yes, not an old guy named Bill. I mean,
1: old guys nowadays... My dad hates just the mention of it.
0: Yeah, and he hasn't even had an (laughs) emmeridge and died in a chair.
1: No, he's just hanging out, but... Um, yeah, older men really don't like talking about that.
0: Now, the investigators, specifically Gross and Playfair, might have been, they've often been criticized after the fact, and even actually at the time, even other Society for Psychical Research uh, investigators criticized them for being too open and Mm. too unskeptical of all this. And I will say uh, after one of the times when all this barking and whistling came from Janet Playfair noted in his notes afterward, as always, Janet's mouth barely seemed to be moving. Like that was an impressive part of the thing. It's like, wait, so the noises are all coming from her and her mouth is moving. Hmm. I will say, Hmm. according to the family. According to the Hodgson family, three years later, after the media firestorm had died down, a man claiming to be Bill Wilkins' son, the son of a man named Bill Wilkins...
1: Who lived in the house?
0: ...contacted the family and said his father used to live in the house and that he had died of a brain hemorrhage in a chair in the corner of the living room.
1: Did they verify this?
0: It appears. Apparently is legit. I've never seen anyone contradict that. The son's name was Terry uh, Wilkins. hmm And uh, yeah, his father apparently owned and died in that house. Okay. Which is the creepiest detail in this whole story.
1: Absolutely.
0: Back on the worthy investigators maybe too credulous tip, uh, Gross and Playfair also noticed in their notes that Janet was, quote, always near when something happened. Um, so they... You know, that's, they decided the haunting was centered on Janet. Mm-hmm. Um, but they noticed that when the girls were separated, like when Peggy was at a neighbor's house, for example, um, we saw in the movie that other kids stayed, you know, in a different home for a while because it was scary. Mm-hmm. Um, the incidents would continue in both locations, so where both sisters were. Okay. Playfair did spend a night totally alone in the Green Street house once, and he recorded no phenomenon at all on that night. Hmm. Meanwhile, at one point, Janet was in the hospital for evaluation for six weeks. Because this, you know.
1: Right. If she's the one doing
0: this, it's a psychological issue. <laughs> right. And some incidents continued to occur, but only at the house. Okay. Um. The, the older sister was home. But Janet was not. And there, there were still some um, incidents going on. But incidents overwhelmingly happened while people were out of the room. Um, hmm. And again, the investigators interpret this. Interestingly, uh, Gross wrote, it's smarter than we are. Look Look at its timing. The moment you go out of a room, something happens. You stay in the room for hours and nothing moves. It knows what we're up to.
1: I mean, that's one way to interpret it.
0: Yeah, I think that quote both um, highlights a great reason for suspecting the girls, mm-hmm. um, but also just the investigator's inherent belief that this that the family was telling the truth that these things were real. Um, Playfair also wrote in his notes, "Quote the connection between Janet and the voice is obviously very close. There have been several occasions when she says something it obviously meant to say." And vice versa. Would she slip up like that if she was faking the whole thing?
1: I mean, she's eleven, so maybe. Yeah,
0: it's like total reverse logic, right? Yeah, it's like we heard her make mistakes while doing the trick.
1: Well, it it seems like it seems like no matter what, these investigators were pretty convinced. Now, whether that's just you know I want to believe kind of stuff or being there hit different? I mean, I don't know.
0: Well, they weren't the only Society for Psychical Research investigators on the scene at the time in Enfield. Um, There was another named Anita Gregory. Now, she's... By the way, Guy Playfair is left out of this movie entirely. Mm -hmm. Doesn't appear. Possible reason for that coming up in just a second, I'll let you know. Oh, boy. But obviously, as we said, Maurice Gross is... Um, mm-hmm. They call him Morris, so I don't know if I'm mispronouncing his name, actually. Mm-hmm. And they also portray Anita Gregory, who is the um, kind of looking down her nose skeptic in the, like, smart... I'm picturing her in a pantsuit, but I assume she was in, like, a felt skirt of some kind, uh, taping the little girl through the window and going, Ha! I got gotcha! you." Leap of faith, my ass! Is, like, a direct quote, basically. hmm Um... Anita Gregory was on that scene, but she was also a member of the Society for Psychical Research and an avowed believer in ghosts. Um, She wrote in the journal for the SPR, as they like to be called, uh, on this case. And in that article, she said that, yes, a video camera in the girl's room caught Janet bending spoons and attempting to bend an iron bar and also practicing bouncing on her bed.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: More on the bed bouncing in just a little bit. That will make you go, "Oh!" <laughs> Gregory also said the mysterious voice was obviously just the girls speaking through a bed sheet from inside of their room and concluded the incident may have started paranormally. Again, she's a believer and she wants to believe. But Gregory said by the time she had gotten there, it had become a farcical performance, her words, for reporters' and investigators' benefit.
1: Well, a lot of investigators of the paranormal or UFOs or anything like that, they take great umbrage with people faking things because it makes the real stuff harder to believe. So she might have just been one of those kinds of people.
0: Now, John Beloff, the former president of the Society for Psychical Research... He was also on this scene at some point. Basically, everyone with an interest in ghosts anywhere in England, and you'll see some from the U.S., <laughs> um, descended on this house. Now, Beloff said that Janet was clearly a talented ventriloquist, and that that was where the voices were coming from. Huh. Now, also as portrayed in the movie, reporters did catch the girls, um, not just bending the spoons and stuff, but sort of tossing, tossing things around. And both Janet and Margaret admitted that they had done, I guess, everything. But then after a conversation with Gross and Playfair, they retracted their statements and said, no, actually, it was just the stuff that you guys saw us doing.
1: So when they were seen, was this via a camera they didn't know was there? Or was it like people just saw them in the room doing this stuff? Both. Okay.
0: You know, nudging a piece of furniture with their foot. And a reporter goes, hey, what are you doing? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but that said, speaking of uh, the Conjuring Two, and speaking of the Warrens, they haven't even appeared in this story yet, and we're uh, so deep into it. So, what's up with that?
1: What is up with that, Sean?
0: Well, don't worry. The Warrens and more investigators will descend on <laughs> Enfield um, in the second part of our story on the Enfield haunting after the break.
1: Boo. <laughs>
0: And with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Welcome back. During the first half of the show, we... Really got into it with the Enfield Poltergeist. A lot, of, uh, a lot of ooky, spooky happenings, Carrie. Mm-hmm. Creepy, kooky, mysterious. Spooky. And altogether ooky. <laughs> the Hodgson family. <laughs> I promised just before the break that Connecticut celebrity ghost hunters Ed and Lorraine Warren, uh, Vera Farmiga, and Patrick Wilson themselves would be showing up on the scene in the second half. And you know what? Why make you wait anymore, Carrie? Ed and Lorraine Warren investigated this case in the summer of 1978. And honestly, they're probably the most famous thing about it at this point because of that Conjuring 2 movie, which portrays them as like Catholic superheroes. (laughs) Secret agents. Working for the church secretly to come in and just kick Satan's ass. Pretty much. Ed and Lorraine did investigate the case in the summer of 1978 and determined it to be the result of some supernatural phenomena. Mm -hmm. they um the warrens in in many of these cases this is the same as amityville um and also the one in bridgeport will come in to investigate a haunting and eventually come to the realization that wouldn't you know it it's demons again uh and it's really demons that are behind the whole thing um so i'm pretty sure that the warrens thought this was demons Ed claimed at one point that he saw Janet fast asleep and levitating high over her bed. Um, there are photos of Janet levitating, but uh, none of them are that impressive. None of them have her horizontally you know, right. sleeping. A guy, Playfair, who remember is not portrayed in The Conjuring 2, mm-hmm. uh, says that the Warrens showed up uninvited and were around for basically one day and then left.
1: So Guy Playfair was annoyed that they were kind of stealing the thunder of the Psychical Research Society of England or whatever.
0: Uh, yes, I think he that's, felt
1: big-timed.
0: Uh, yes, it, because who? Because the Warrens are the ultimate showmen. They're the they're the P.T. Barnums of the paranormal. <laughs> sure. You know, it's easy to get upstaged once they're once they're around. But also, I think they were making a big deal of this case after the fact. And this guy was just like... You well, were barely here. We spent months with this family. You guys were basically on a day trip. And so
1: they uh, they didn't allow him to be portrayed in Conjuring 2, I guess.
0: Yeah, and they made his partner into this just like, you know, oh yeah, what they said, guy. <laughs> uh, Ed says, Inhuman spirit phenomena were in progress. Now, you couldn't record the dangerous, threatening atmosphere inside that little house. But you could film the levitations, teleportations, and dematerializations of people and objects that were happening there, not to mention the many hundreds of hours of tape recordings made of these spirit voices speaking out loud in the rooms.
1: So do we have this video of levitations and dematerialization?
0: We have photographs, and I'm going to uh, show you the most famous... There is a big deal of the first poltergeist activity ever caught on film... Uh, And the photographs slash film most often trotted out uh, are this series, Carrie, that allegedly show Janet levitating off her bed. So that's a series of four photos, Carrie, and it's playing back to back for you. So sort of like a film. This uh, supposedly shows Janet, and it doesn't look like a normal jump pattern, right? She sort of rises up out of the bed and then seems to be slowly coming down.
1: Yeah, I've, I've seen at least a couple of these before.
0: But, pay very close attention to the boy in the bed in the back. I guess boy and girl in the bed in the back, Carrie. In the first and second, or sorry, first and third photos. Mm Mm-hmm. And then in the second and fourth photos.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Kid covered in blanket, not. Kid covered in blanket, not. So these are actually two separate jumps that we're looking at. Oh. That have been interspersed to make it look like a longer kind of weirder jump. I see and the family ordered them this way and said look at our daughter levitating. Hmm.
1: But uh, how how could they order it that way without the help of the photographer?
0: Yeah. Sure. I mean when they presented these photos to the public they said look oh, at this. Oh, but the
1: the film. photographer would have been in on that then.
0: Yes. Okay. Um, but also that just looks doesn't it just look like she's jumping?
1: It's not, uh, I mean, I've seen these before. It's not super evidential to me. I mean, it it looks, she's not like in a position that is completely unnatural. If you were jumping on or off your bed, Um, you know, the, the legs are kind of bent. She's kind of squatted as if she, she had, you know, leapt up, sprung up. Um, It's not like you said, it's not levitating fully horizontal. It's not doing something that would not be natural if you just jumped off the bed. So I I don't see it as definitive proof.
0: This case, because once reporters started saying the girls were faking it and police were like, I guess the girls were faking it, The case arguably ended up hurting the Warrens' credibility. This is where the Warrens' part in the story ends, by the way. They just went back to America, and they were like, yeah, it seems supernatural to me. Hmm. Um, they did make a big deal of it later, though, and then with the, they sort of got caught up in the blowback, I guess, from people widely assuming this case was a hoax, the people who knew about it.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: so ultimately probably hurt the Warrens' credibility because, well, if this Enfield thing was just these girls playing tricks, you know are the Warrens just frauds? They said that they saw this girl levitating fully over her bed.
1: Or did they fall for the tricks? Right. Which is probably just as bad in in these people's minds.
0: Yeah. I want to return to that question at the end of the pod, Carrie, about uh, whether this case being real or not hurts the Warrens' credibility one way or the other. Sure. I told you all types came out to investigate this thing, Carrie. I also told you the former head of the Society for Psychical Research said that Janet was obviously a talented ventriloquist. Well, an actual ventriloquist, (laughs) English ventriloquist Ray Allen, visited the house as well, and uh, he agreed. He said Janet's vocal tricks were impressive, but nothing supernatural, nothing that uh, a talented ventriloquist couldn't do, even a little girl.
1: Okay, well, at least she has a career path set in front of her.
0: Also visiting, because apparently this was a Vegas nightclub at this point, <laughs> um, was American... Wayne Newton? Yeah, here comes Wayne Newton to, to sing Donka Shen and do a quick seance. <laughs> American stage musician, Milbourne Christopher... Who? ...came to investigate as well. I know, uh, he's not as well-known a name as your uh, Harry's Houdini, your David's Copperfield. Your
1: Wayne Newton...
0: But he was a big deal. Christopher was the former president of the Society of American Mus- Society of American Magicians, and a founding member of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. So he was one of these Harry Houdini, uh, James Randi type guys who Skeptics. was- Skeptics. Yeah, a magician who then has a second act that's just all about exposing mediums and like pulling capes off of things and going, see, I told
1: you. Okay. Okay.
0: He wrote three books on the subject of the paranormal. Uh, The first was called ESP, Seers, and Psychics. The second was called Mystics and the Occult. And the third was called Search for the Soul. And these are all three strictly debunking works in which he illustrates through logic and evidence that psychic powers in the first book, hermetic magic in the second book, and the human soul in the third book are bullshit. Oh, boy. Uh, That's comforting. I, I think this is a magician thing because, um, and maybe we even talked about this before in Deadly Illusions <laughs> way back in our first season, Carrie. Um, magicians lie to people professionally, but they do it with the understanding that it's a lie. There's a wink and the audience knows and the audience is in on it. And I think they sort of turn a bitter and judgmental eye towards con men, essentially, for, hey, wait, you're taking the easy way out. Like, well, look-
1: that's kind of what made you more prone to believe Bill Hall in The World's Most Haunted House. That he was book. a magician. He's a magician. He's writing about the Bridgeport poltergeist, and he believes it's real. So I'm assuming that Milbourne or whatever does not take the same
0: path. Yeah, it's weird. You would think it'd be Christopher Milborne, but it is Milbourne Christopher. That's too bad. Last name, first name situation. Uh, once while he was there, Janet said that she was stuck in the bathroom and couldn't open the door. And Christopher, I guess just standing on the other side of the bathroom door, just said, well, sorry, Janet, I can't determine paranormal causality for an incident that I can't see. So, you know, that's nothing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Playfair wrote in his notebooks, I guess he was still hanging around. uh, Playfair wrote, it almost seemed that the poltergeist was out to incriminate her by producing third-rate phenomena in the presence of a first-rate observer. (laughs)
1: Well, that's kind of what happens in Conjuring 2 when she's filmed doing this whole mess in the kitchen. It says it's a ghost, and then she's the one bending spoons and stuff. She says it's because the spirit told, tell, her, told was, her that yeah that she had to, to fake it because otherwise he would kill her family.
0: Yeah, she had to make the people go away. Mm-hmm. Which is... Um, you know, as ways to explain the girl getting caught doing this stuff uh, for movie purposes. It's a, it's a good little plot device, because she's possessed anyway, right? Let's, let's fold these, these plot lines together. Another time, Janet was sent to her room so that the voice could manifest for Christopher, and he quietly shadowed her up the stairs. And he said that he saw Janet peek out her bedroom door to see if anyone was there, and then was clearly kind of flustered to see Christopher following her and seeing her peek. He concluded the poltergeist was, quote, nothing more than the antics of a little girl who wanted to cause trouble and was very, very clever.
1: Well, the little girl and at least her sister, right?
0: Yes, at, at least Margaret has, has to have been in on it. And I think both of the boys at different points reported um, seeing or hearing things. But of course, you don't need everyone in the family to be hoaxing. Some people are just going to you're told the ghosts are around, you're going to see some creepy stuff. Sure. And then if you're, if the rest of your family's apparently also seeing it, then you'll just go, yeah, I guess we're all seeing this. Mm-hmm. Some have raised questions, and this is true of any UFO or ghost case, um, of why Janet would have done this.
1: Well, at least for so long. I mean, maybe she's needing some attention after the divorce. She's a, a troubled child going through puberty and, and dealing with all of these external factors. Maybe she wants a little attention, whatever way she can get it. But like, why do this for two years or whatever?
0: Particularly when it apparently made her life harder. Uh, Janet says she was bullied at school mm-hmm. while this was going on. She was called Ghost Girl. Oh, yeah. And am sure. And she said she had crane flies put down her back, which that sounds like a one-off. It doesn't sound like something that's happening to you every day, but... Um, She was called Ghost Girl, and her brother, John, the older, younger brother, the you know middle one, <laughs> his school bullies, I guess, would call him the freak boy from the ghost house.
1: Yeah, that sounds like it. It's
0: like the witcher. Here be the witch man, the
1: freak of nature. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's Henry Cavill. He looks so freakish. Sure.
0: So the question does stand what kid would willingly bring this down on themselves.
1: Again, for at least such an extended period of time and to such
0: scrutiny from outside people. Mm-hmm. And then we get to the dramatic, thrilling climax. And in The Conjuring too, <laughs> Well,
1: Ed Warren's like a, an action star hanging out of the window and Lorraine's fighting a demon and all this stuff.
0: Yeah, events culminate in Janet being fully possessed by the spirit, or rather by the demonic entity lurking behind the spirit of poor old grumpy Bill Wilkins Mm -hmm. who just wanted to see his family Mm -hmm. her eyes go all yellow and she chucks furniture at her family until they leave and then Ed shows up and she throws a couch right into his head yeah Um, now despite Lorraine's visions of his death and the sure danger of more furniture being flung (laughs) at his face Ed wades through a flooded basement for punching through the floor (laughs) To, to crawl upstairs and then he immediately takes a face full of steam and has to wander uh, blind
1: yeah the steam
0: through this house of horrors until Lorraine can find the demon's true name and send it back to the abyss
1: now again this is all the film
0: yes <laughs> yes this was all in the film um I can't remember the demon's name exactly but I think it was Valak. it was something like the nun coming September 2018 <laughs> And she does, in time for them to stop Janet from killing herself under the demon's power by uh, throwing herself onto a tree. Mm-hmm. And then she says, you know, uh, uh, most people never get someone to change their life. Oh, I got two. About the warrants. Yes. Um, in reality, in autumn 1978, Peggy brought in a priest to bless the house. And after that, the scariest of the happenings just kind of stopped.
1: They waited like a year to think of blessing?
0: Yeah. That's That's usually the first thing people do. Took them a whole year to get here. Yes, if you remember the um, Bridgeport one, they had a priest in there right quick.
1: Literally. I mean, Amityville Horror, neither of us think that that was anything, but even then they had a priest
0: immediately. Day one, get the priest in there. (laughs) Um, Janet does claim her mother continued to feel a presence there for the rest of the time she lived in the house. Hmm. Um, The Conjuring also added that part where Bill again, uh, where he spoke through Janet during a TV interview. Uh,
1: well, I think it was just being recorded. I don't know if was it a TV interview.
0: They show us like a a TV style picture, so they're they're they are recording it with a camera, and it is a TV guy. Oh, okay. So the, Bill never spoke through Janet during a TV interview, or indeed when anyone was looking at right. Her. And, uh, the part where, any part where Janet teleports around is made up for the movie. I think the only mention of teleportation is that one time that Ed was like, and teleportations! (laughs) Yeah. And the part where she attacked her brother with a knife and then wedged herself into that wall behind all those pipes, uh, that was added as well. But other than that, other than everything the Warrens are in, in this movie, basically, um... It draws on a lot of the real elements of the story. Like I said, the actual names of some of the witnesses are on like faux TV cameras in the beginning with their actual kind of words and recollections of the uh, events. And the early hauntings, basically everything except the stuff I just mentioned, the big set piece stuff, um, matches what the family reported.
1: Was there any Crooked Man situation?
0: <laughs> nope. Nope, that's completely added just to get something good and creepy in there. It's it creepy. Effective. It's very creepy. We don't
1: like British nursery rhymes about was messed up old man men. And
0: he killed his crooked family. Isn't that what she says at the end? Like uh, in Bill's yeah, voice.
1: It's, it's not great.
0: The next occupants of the house after the Hodgsons moved out were Claire Bennett and her four sons. Claire said, I didn't see anything, but I felt uncomfortable. It was definitely some kind of presence in the house. I always felt like someone was looking at me. Before long, she heard about the house's history, and she and her sons moved out after just a couple of months. It should be noted, as far as the Hodgson's go, it was Billy who eventually sold the house in the mid-2000s. After Peggy, the mom, died, unfortunately, of cancer in 2003. So it's not like they were driven out of the house by all this.
1: No, that was what thirty years.
0: Yeah, that yeah. was thirty years, and as you say, they they went, you know, over a year before they even brought somebody in to bless the place. Yeah. So whatever was going, it couldn't have been as intense as you see in that movie, or else you know, you are not staying in that home. Mm-hmm. Now, just a few more things that have been addressed by basically all investigators, except for those first two. Eyewitnesses are not super reliable sources of information. This comes up in criminal trials all the time. Uh, people, especially when they're told they're walking into a scary situation.
1: right. they're already they're ready to be scared.
0: They see what they expect to see. and uh, a lot of people talk about the phenomenon of like you don't notice something. Your brain doesn't process an object until it needs to a lot of the time, if it's just kind of in the foreground or background. Mm-hmm. And so objects that the family... Objects that you think were just suddenly placed somewhere, right? That wasn't there a second ago. Sometimes you just didn't see it a second ago. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to be true for every instance in this case. No. But in all poltergeist cases, uh, some amount of these phenomena are going to be imagined, right? Because you think there's a ghost in the house. A g- 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 ghost! <laughs> um... And so that means the girls, like I said, the whole family didn't need to be faking. But also, even if it was just the girls, even if it was just Janet, the girls didn't need to fake all of these occurrences just to convince people something weird was going on. And then once people are convinced something weird is going on, more things will happen.
1: hmm
0: And finally, it is probably worth remembering that these two girls were likely feeling abandoned by their father. Mm-hmm. After apparently not a, you know, happy or easy divorce. And what divorce is easy, obviously. And at this time, it was much less common. Sure. You're you're suddenly being raised by just mom. And they were suddenly met with two bright, friendly, and kind men who were intensely interested in their lives and everything going on with them and wanted to live in their house for several months.
1: They kind of gained these new father figures
0: and so how far might children go to keep those presences in their lives yeah and it's kind of interesting both um janet being caught out faking some of the occurrences is covered in the movie and also i would say her relationship with these two investigators kind of gets uh pushed onto ed and lorraine ed and lorraine basically take credit <laughs> For that, but at the end when she's like, "And I got two who saved my life," it's really Playfair and gr- uh, Gross Maurice Gross that she's talking about. It is not Adam Lorraine Warren,
1: right? Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you finally have the attention that you do- so desperately need from an adult. You know, your mom's dividing things up into four kids plus trying to manage running the home and and earning money and all this stuff, and you miss your father, and now there are these two, you know, fake fathers moving in. Uh, It's kind of a bittersweet sort of thing, desperately wanting them
0: to stay. So on that note, Caroline, what do you think was actually going on here? What's your theory of the case? Gosh, it's really
1: hard, because there's so few witnesses, like actual witnesses who saw... With their eyes, not through a door, what was going
0: on? And and I think it's, I think it's worth noting and worth considering that the two people who spent the two investigators who spent the most time in the house were absolutely convinced that something was going on.
1: And that's definitely interesting. I don't, I don't really know how to feel about this one. Um, There's nothing in it like Amityville that is so just batshit unhinged that I'm like, no, come on. Uh, But there's nothing in it like Bridgeport Poltergeist where, you know, there's a bunch of police officers seeing things fly off the wall and she's nowhere in the room, you know? Right. So.
0: The Amityville book, the like initial report mm -hmm. had elements just as crazy as the Conjuring 2 movie did. Sure. Yeah. So.
1: So I would be interested to see what Janet might have said around the time that Conjuring 2 came out. If she did any interviews if she had any statements if she's still saying this really happened um i don't want to to call anyone a liar especially a child do do you want me to
0: do it for you no
1: i i don't necessarily believe that this was paranormal is what i'll say
0: and i will repeat that in essentially 100 percent of poltergeist cases there is a adolescent or teenage child usually a girl in the house and i mentioned before that doesn't just mean it's not paranormal uh right we've talked on this podcast before about how maybe in yes a carry kind of a way those pressures and feelings are sometimes expressed psychically telekinetically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in girls maybe uh through that emotional stress they're creating the poltergeist activity rather than some kind of a spirit but it also could be just could be that teenagers like to lie and throw things
1: <laughs> i i don't know this one doesn't convince me but um I'm not going to discount any poltergeist or any haunting surrounding a, a young girl just because of that. So I think this one, um, eh, but I'm still open-minded about any of the others that we may tackle in the future.
0: For most convincing poltergeist, by the way, oh, I, I mentioned I would go back to the Warrens' um, credibility. Yes, yes. Caroline, uh, it's no secret We've been hitting the tour circuit, the library, (laughs) the the Massachusetts Public Library tour circuit. (laughs) Uh, And during our last talk, we were talking about um, ghosts. And specifically, we were talking about the case from The Conjuring Mm One, the Perrin family. Mm -hmm. And a very nice lady asked us at the end of our show, I heard that the Amityville case was a clear, the, the Amityville case is a clear hoax what are we supposed to do with the Warrens, given how in on that one they were? She said, I want to believe, help me. <laughs> and I right. didn't help her, I don't think. I well, didn't help her believe. you're the wrong person to ask, certainly. Um, but it is true that if the Warrens jump into these things all with both feet, and, by the way, introduce the same demonic elements to each one like a cookie cutter. And then there were shadow figures. And then there was uh, the dad marching around the house, chanting in Latin. And, the, you know, all of the things. But they didn't do those things in this one. But I think it's probably because there was just no dad in the house.
1: <laughs> um, I mean, did, did it affect their credibility to be associated with this case?
0: For a time, I would say yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is... This is the end of the seventies. This is really the end of the Warrens' kind of heyday, which was kind of started in seventy-seven, and uh, uh, their period of like real national fame. I think it kind of um, ended as we were getting into the eighties. They were still hu- well huge active names.
1: fame. I mean, they they definitely came back into the fold and huge names in when the when I pa- was younger.
0: Huge names in the paranormal scene mm-hmm. throughout. The most famous ghost hunters in the world
1: ever. Maybe Hans Holzer. He's pretty famous.
0: I don't want to hear it <laughs> okay um but I think it did I think it did hurt their credibility and for me it hurts you know believing anything that comes out of either of their mouths because the, we know the amityville case is fake
1: and yeah well it's either it's either they're in on it or they were taken in by it if now, you believe that now so.
0: as as I said to that nice woman in the talk because I did actually help Carrie
1: <laughs> okay.
0: I said that, and we see this with UFO people all the time, people who really do believe will sometimes hoax things just to get more people onto their side. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we I know there's ghosts here. but
1: Well, and like we said before, and some people will be pissed about that because it's the uh, Boy Who Cried Wolf situation.
0: And it hurts your credibility. Mm-hmm. But if we want to accept that Amityville's a hoax and also believe the Warrens were sincere and not just con artists... That is an out for you. You can go, well, they were just zhuzhing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But for me, they were con artists.
1: <sighs> okay. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop, and I'm Sari Wienerman,
0: and we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss Podcast.
1: Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to the Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day, your way. It's true crime time. This week, I'll be taking us through some of the main points of the strange death of Debbie Collier, a 15-9-year-old mom from Georgia. Collier was reported missing on September 10th by her husband, Steve, and 36-year-old daughter, Amanda Bearden. And things get weird immediately here. Oh, I love it. A few hours previous to being reported missing, Amanda received a Venmo payment of $2,385 from Debbie.
0: Oh, let me get this kind of haunting. Hold on.
1: (sighs) No. Well, this was when Debbie was still alive. She wrote in the payment message, quote, they are not going to let me go. Love you. There is a key to the house in the blue f- flower pot by the door. What? hmm The next day, a van Collier had been renting was found unlocked about 13 miles south of where she was last seen, and it was found parked along a northeast Georgia highway. And it was dozens of miles away from her actual home. In a search of the woods nearby, officers found a red tote bag lying next to an uprooted tree, and further down the embankment, a partially burned blue tarp. Then, tragically, they found a body. The woman, who would soon be identified as Debbie Collier, was found nude, with signs of charring on her stomach area and holding what authorities described as a small tree in her right hand. Medical examiners have not yet revealed the cause of death, but the case is being investigated as a homicide. Now, two of the strangest details to add to the cryptic Venmo payment. One, Debbie was last seen on surveillance video at a family dollar store in Clayton, Georgia, on September 10th. This store was about 90 minutes north of her home in Athens. At the family dollar, Collier purchased several items that would later be found near her remains, including the previously mentioned red tote bag and blue tarp, along with paper towels, a torch lighter, and a poncho.
0: But not the tree. Tree on site.
1: Tree on site. So, was she chillingly made to purchase the items used in her murder by some assailant, knowing that it would be used in her death?
0: How. How do you? How would someone compel you to do that and not just call I don't, the police? I don't
1: know. But again, the memo says, they are not going to let me go. So who's they? What does she mean by that?
0: Great question. Do we have any answers?
1: Well, number two. Two days prior to Collier's disappearance and death, daughter Amanda moved back to Georgia along with her 27-year-old boyfriend, Andrew uh, Gigerich. Okay, who had gotten the Venmo payment? Amanda. According to Fox, the couple has a history of arrests for domestic violence and other charges, including some that are drug-related, and when they moved back, they returned to the same Athens duplex where they lived before. Now, the strangest part here, and one that's been... All around the newspapers, is that the two thousand three hundred eighty-five dollar Venmo payment that Amanda received from Debbie was almost exactly the amount that would cover Andrew Gigerich's probation fines.
0: Well, maybe Debbie knew that, though. Maybe. But also, why would you give a Ven- Why would you Venmo your daughter before you get killed?
1: Right. There's better
0: uses for the phone, and she's going to get your money anyway.
1: Well, there's also the fact that Amanda's boyfriend, Andrew, threatened the Collier family during a May 2021 domestic dispute with Amanda. Gigerich, a former MMA fighter, wrote a horrific note to Amanda at the time, reading, Have a nice life, you lying-ass bitch. Don't ever contact me again. If you or your family ever come near me again, I will hurt them. P.S. I'm not stupid. Here's your... And I couldn't really make this out. It was blurred. It's like blank toy, maybe. Um, So clearly, Gigerich and Amanda had gotten back together sometime since the May 2021 incident.
0: Pretty hard to walk back from that note.
1: Yeah. Several search warrants have been issued in connection with Collier's death, including to Collier's home and to the home of Amanda Bearden. No arrests have yet been made, but we'll be sure to update you as this case progresses. And
0: I mean, I don't want to cast aspersions, so these are not legal opinions. In fact, these aren't Allegedly. even rigid, just words coming out of my mouth. But that daughter and her boyfriend killed the mom, right?
1: The boyfriend's definitely looking shady.
0: Just but like why does the mom send the Venmo if she thinks she's going to die? I don't know.
1: It's all so strange.
0: Forget that the amount is suspicious. I just don't understand.
1: And going to the family dollar and getting a tarp that is later used with your body. It's really disturbing.
0: What is it that's preventing you inside the family dollar from telling a manager to call the police? You're on
1: camera. Threats against your daughter. If you do anything, I'll go and I'll kill Amanda. Or...
0: Well, then two steps. We need to call the police and <laughs> home to get Amanda yeah, out of there.
1: I don't know. I genuinely don't know. But our thoughts are with Debbie Collier and her grieving family. And um, yeah, we'll we'll keep you updated on, on this crazy, strange case.
0: God, what a sad story. That really, it's incredibly tragic and tragically perfect for true crime. It's just... The, the little holes in that story just scratch all my brain meat in yeah.
1: a, um, I mean, yeah, the details are definitely just so, like, weird.
0: Like, I need to know. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, there it is. Ugh. Hmm. That's it for this episode of ain't it scary with Sean and Carrie like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ain't it scary and check out our website at ain't it You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain't it scary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google voice number two Oh three six, 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 five, five, two, nine. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll be forever grateful.
0: Yes, we will. And special thanks to those already joining us on Patreon, our top-tier patrons, and we love them all, Mm -hmm. are Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Compy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, and Ira. Thank you, guys. You make the show a little bit more worthwhile every (laughs) single week. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe, music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a verb.
1: Ain't it Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. <laughs>